I invite you to turn with me, first of all, today to the Old Testament prophet Zephaniah, chapter 1. And we'll be reading verses 14 to chapter 2, verse 3. Zephaniah 1, 14 to chapter 2, verse 3. Before we turn afterwards to the book of Revelation in the New Testament, Revelation 20, verses 11 to 15. Zephaniah, chapter 1, verse 14 and following. Near is the great day of the Lord, near, and coming very quickly. Listen, the day of the Lord, in it the warrior cries out bitterly. A day of wrath is that day, a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and the high corner towers. I will bring distress on men, so that they will walk like the blind, because they have sinned against the Lord, and their blood will be poured out like dust, and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on the day of the Lord's wrath, and all the earth will be devoured in the fire of his jealousy. For he will make a complete end. Indeed, a terrifying one of all the inhabitants of the earth. Gather yourselves together. Yes, gather, O nation, without shame, before the decree takes effect. The day passes like the chaff before the burning anger of the Lord comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's anger comes upon you. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the earth who have carried out his ordinances. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Perhaps you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. And the 20th chapter of the Revelation, beginning in verse 11. The Apostle John, writing in the Spirit, says... Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books, according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Amen.
As our study through the covenant of church membership ends today, let me draw your attention outward for the next few minutes to the big picture of human history. Framed in a few questions to these publicly embracing new duties and privileges as followers of Jesus Christ, this covenant we've been studying is an affirmation of individually held views. But that doesn't mean it's just a private affair. These are views that touch every broad aspect of faith and living. So qualitatively, seven days a week, the Christian wife differs from a wife who doesn't know and love and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Qualitatively, the Christian husband and father differs from his non-Christian counterpart. And the same is true of children who believe. We Christians approach our work differently. We approach our roles in life differently, our use of time and money differently than the unbeliever. We don't stow our Christian faith away in some little airtight compartment of our brain where it can't affect anything else. It does affect everything else. We keep this testimony, this Christian testimony, out there in the world where it can live and breathe and stretch its legs. We exercise our biblical faith out in the wide world of our thinking, where it shapes, along with everything else, our view of history. And here, too, it sets us apart. There is in secular humanism an uncertainty and consequent aimlessness, purposelessness that biblical Christianity simply doesn't share. Where is history going? Paul McCartney had an answer. It's just another day. At the office where the papers grow, she takes a break drinks another coffee, and she finds it hard to stay awake. It's just another day. Kansas had an answer, too. Dust in the wind. All we are is dust in the wind. There you have the prophets of secular humanism, the prophets of the 20th and 21st century West. They say history is going nowhere, but the Bible gives us a better answer, a better informed answer, and more true. If the Christian is going to be intellectually consistent, seeing everything with its proper reference to Christ as Lord, then we have to view history as truly his story. Fallen humanity has a significant role to play in the story, but it's not the leading role. That belongs to Jesus Christ. Think of the illustrious ones of human history. Where's Nebuchadnezzar today? Where are Belshazzar and Cyrus and Darius? Where's Alexander the Great? Where are the vast empires they led? Where are Charlemagne? and Napoleon, and Jefferson. They're vapors. Vapors appearing for a brief moment and now vanished away, as will you and I. And so here we have humanity as an entire race. Is it significant? Yes, it's significant. It's made in God's image, in righteousness and holiness of the truth. It's made for eternity. 
three chapters into the whole enterprise of humanity, what have we become? A passing cloud, a puff of smoke, the whole race of us. There was a time Adam and Eve and their children came onto the stage of world history and there's coming a day we'll make our grand exit, individually of course, but also as the whole race of Adam's children. On that day, God's purpose is in Christ, who is the new Adam, who is the last Adam. God's purposes will be accomplished. They'll be at an end. And not another moment is going to be wasted on maintaining a history that no longer surrenders to Jesus Christ, his elect, chosen from before the foundation of the world. In the Spirit, on the Lord's Day, the Apostle John saw books opened and the dead raised, and each of us giving an account of ourselves to him who sits on the throne, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. The last great day had come. The day that, according to Peter's second letter, comes like a thief. And then, he says, the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And the Apostle John as well, in the Spirit, saw that day from afar. The last great day had come. But not without antecedents or warning. In fact, as you consider the apparent structure of history from our 21st century vantage point in it, you find it neither aimless nor particularly surprising, any more surprising than one is surprised to see a rosebud blossom into a rose. It simply becomes more of what it already is. You see, historical events haven't so much appeared as they've unfolded, progressively opening more and more every day, every hour, as a flower does, all according to the secret will of God, of course, but in a mystery that the gospel finally unlocks for us those features of life that in Genesis were so few and simple have now over the many centuries become more numerous and complex. One can only imagine that history and human life will become more so, not less so, until the coming of that last great day. But history demonstrates certain patterns, both in its lines and in its cycles, leading the careful thinker to see a sovereign wisdom weaving all these separate colorful threads of history into a glorious tapestry that's not yet quite finished. The embroiderer's needle, to continue that word picture, the needle he's using to puncture and produce this final glorious work of human history is the needle of human crisis. And if you've heard enough sermons in your Christian life, you already know this English word crisis is nothing but a transliteration of the Greek word for judgment. 
A derivative of the word appears in verse 12, where we see that the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. This last great day is the final human crisis. The last of a long line of them. The one crisis faintly prefigured in every other human crisis that precedes it. Indeed, how often do the Old Testament prophets speak of the coming day of the Lord? Zephaniah did, as we've already read this morning. But he wasn't the only one. Isaiah also spoke of the day of the Lord. And Joel did. And Malachi did. And others. They all wrote of the day of the Lord. Well, weren't they writing of covenantal catastrophes like the nation's Deuteronomic ruin? Weren't they writing of national overthrow in the days of Nebuchadnezzar? And beyond that, the days of the Maccabees? And beyond that, the days of the Romans? Weren't they writing of the overthrow of Judah and the Jerusalem temple? Weren't they foretelling the end of the Old Testament system that came crashing down under Titus one day on the calendar in the year 70 A.D.? Yes, indeed. They wrote of those days. But those crises, those historical crises, were and are just the seismic rumblings of the coming big one. And these crises of human history have always served at least two major functions with respect to our covenantal relationship with God through Christ. First of all, These crises of history clarify who we are. They make it plain. They make it plain to everyone. When the church of the second century suffered under the persecutions of Marcus Aurelius, there was no mistaking the Christian for the non-Christian. The subject being taken into custody, brought before the magistrate, on pain of death, would either deny Jesus Christ or refuse to deny him. You see, there's no wiggle room. There's no opportunity for some live and let live compromise. The plain fact is that either Caesar is Lord or Christ is Lord. They can't both be Lord. Polycarp, Bishop of Smyrna, was only the best known of many Christians at that time whose identity in Christ was made clear through suffering. As he was condemned to be burnt, the proconsul then urged him, saying, Swear and I will release thee, reproach Christ. And Polycarp answered, Eighty and six years have I served him, and he never once wronged me. How then shall I blaspheme my king who has saved me? You see, brothers, every crisis in every age has to some degree the effect of showing the world more clearly who we are. Every successive crisis also has the second effect of accelerating our final end. It moves us closer to our final destination. It represents the further doom of the unbeliever. 
If the crisis at hand doesn't kill him outright, it makes him worse than he started. It makes him a worse man, and if anything, worse prepared for eternity. It makes him more hard, more bitter, more like those of whom Isaiah spoke, those who pass through the land hard-pressed and famished, and it will turn out that when they're hungry, they'll be enraged and curse their king and their god as they face upward. Then they will look to the earth and behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be driven away into darkness. You see, hard times do that to people without any spiritual resources on which to draw for help. But to the believer, every new crisis is a means of our sanctification and growth in grace. Crises make us, too, more of what we were already. The unbeliever in crisis experiences only greater sin, yielding a greater condemnation. The believer, on the other hand, the believer, a greater grace as we cling to Christ alone. Indeed, as we find everything else taken from us, the present crisis, whatever it may be, teaches us a healthy, robust contempt for any other Savior. We simply don't trust them. Crisis teaches us that any other Savior is no Savior at all. And Zephaniah reminded us, didn't he? Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on the day of the Lord's wrath. So first, the threshing of crisis separates the wheat from the chaff. And while the chaff is driven away, the millstone proceeds to crush the good wheat into useful flour. You see, Christians don't escape suffering. We don't escape tribulation. We only find that it makes us more of what God intended us to be. All these crises humanity faces in every generation are leading to that final crisis coming on the last day of history, that great day when the sea gives up the dead which were in it. And can you imagine, by the way, what those words must have meant to an old apostle who'd spent all his younger days on the sea? Fishermen know other fishermen. They network in more ways than one. Perhaps a man or two John had known back in those days had disappeared over the rail. Well, God's purposes aren't thwarted when there's no grave to open when there's no dust to raise. No one tragically lost to us on land or sea is ever lost to God. On that coming day, death and the grave will give up their dead. And the distinctions then to be made will have nothing to do with whether these raised bodies had once been lodged in a marvelous mausoleum or in a pauper's grave or a plastic garbage bag. The circumstances of my demise simply won't matter. 
because books will be opened. Books will be opened. From this first set of books will be determined our deeds, each one of us. Deeds recorded by an omniscient God, we may suppose, from day to day. Some crimes, after all, are punished with many stripes and some with few. Lost sinners don't sin equally, and God is an absolutely just judge. Even among believers, redeemed by the Lamb of God, who alone takes away the sin of the world, some are today building upon that solid foundation of Christ with deeds of gold and silver and precious stones. Others are building upon it with wood, hay, and straw. Each man's work, says the Apostle Paul to the Corinthians, will become evident, for the day will show it, because it's to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. But there is on that coming last day another book opened. Did you notice that? If the first books opened reveal our human merits and demerits, none of which approaches the threshold of eternal life, even the best of them being polluted with sin, don't yet despair. Though on that day you see perhaps not volume after volume, but shelf upon shelf of record books with your name on the binder, don't despair, friends. Turn your eyes away from your merits. Turn your eyes away from your demerits. Because, look, another book is opened. Over 60 years ago, Dr. William J. McKnight explained these books in Revelation 20 verses 12 and 15. And what he said was this. The day books, the best of them, one and all, without an exception, will show no end of shortages and offensive entries. Thus far, accordingly, in the scales of justice, it is a closed case. There is nothing further to be said. The doom is death. And there is only one more page to be scanned. The judge turns the leaf. The memorandum that meets his eye is written in the blood of his son. It reads, quote, I took your son to be my savior. I made it my purpose in life to honor and glorify him. I aim to do His will and His work in the world and thus to keep myself clothed in the beauty of holiness for His name's sake. He, on His part, agreed to make up my deficits and pay my debt. On His promise I relied and on His merits I plead for mercy. He said He would write my name in His book. Is it not there? Then the judge turns to the ledger and says, Yes, it is here. Enter with the righteous into life eternal. And so, says John, 
If anyone is not found written in the book of life, he is cast into the lake of fire. Beloved, let's not for a moment trust our brightest deeds to fit us for heaven. They're the keys to eternal disappointment. Not one of them opens the lock. Our very best moments are freighted down with sin. They can't withstand the scrutiny of an omniscient judge who looks beyond the deed into the heart. And if the very best of them fits us only for hell, should we expect him simply to overlook all the rest of the damning entries? Your future and mine isn't to be found within the day books. So do you want to give your account with joy at the last great day? Then let it be in humble reliance on his unaided grace. Him who settled all your debts and from eternity inscribed your name indelibly in his book. On that day, death itself will be cast into the lake of fire. Death has no place in the new heavens and new earth wherein righteousness dwells. The grave itself will follow it. All these first things that Adam purchased for his children will have passed away. Behold, in Christ all things become new. Amen.